You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. Talk a little bit about tension and crises. Those are two words that we most often associate with negative connotations. Even the word tension causes there to be tension in the room. Or the word crises, like, man, I don't, I don't need another crisis in my life. Think about that word, and at least in my mind, historically, you think like 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis, when everybody thought the world was going to come to an end and a nuclear standoff with the then Soviet Union and the United States and Cuba. And think about tension now, whenever we use that word, we often use it in terms of war, like there's tension in the Middle East or there's tension in this place. Like I said, there's usually negative connotations when we think about the words tension or crisis. But there is something different about these words when it comes to, I believe, our faith. Because yes, there are the negative connotations that we associate with it, but there are times that both tension and crisis can be helpful in producing in us an ever-deepening faith in Jesus Christ. Let's start with tension. Typically, like I said, I don't like it. I don't like it in my conversations. I don't like it in my relationships. I don't like it in my shoulders, in my muscles. I don't like tension, but... It usually is an indication of something that I need to deal with. If there's tension in my relationship, if there's tension in my muscles, if there's tension in a conversation, it's usually an indication that something's wrong and I need to do something about it. Just because I don't like it doesn't mean that it isn't useful. Think about it when it comes to a bridge. From an engineering standpoint, without tension and compression, a bridge would collapse. So the goal of tension, as I understand it, and as I was reading, particularly on a bridge, when you're trying to bridge the gap between one point and another point, the the goal of the tension is to move the stress from the weaker places to the stronger areas so it could support the proper weight, making the bridge structurally sound. Compare that to faith. There's a tension when it comes to our faith in believing in an unseen God. And in order to bridge that gap between where we are and where God is, we must believe that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. And guess what else? When there is a weakness in our faith, here's what God does by his grace. He shifts that tension from the weak parts of our faith to the strong parts of who he is. He is strong in our weakness. So there's this pulling and pressing in life that cannot be avoided but God uses it to help us bear the weight of his glory in the earth. In this case, tension is good. What about a crisis? I don't like it when there's a crisis in my life. I don't like it when somebody brings to me a crisis in the church. But at the same time, it can be an intense motivator to come up with a needed solution to something. 
It can also be a great pressing in to God because I'm desperate for Jesus to come through. I'm desperate for him to come through miraculously in the middle of this crisis. So I wanna read from our text today where there is some tension, there's a crisis, and there is a miracle. Our text throughout this series we're using is the book of John. So if you have your Bible with you, I want you to turn with me to the book of John, chapter 4. Of course, you can use whatever mobile device that you have or it'll be up on the screen. But as we often encourage you, I know Carla did the last time she taught. It's great to have access to and use uh, uh, the Word of God in this this particular mode and medium as the word here and I'm going to read from John chapter 4 verse 43 through 54 we're going to read the passage scripture then unpack it together after two days he left Galilee who's that we're talking about Jesus verse 44 now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country when he arrived in Galilee the Galileans welcomed him they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Lord, we ask that you would take your word and transform us from the inside out. We're in week two of our series, Miracles, Let Him Be Known, which is the purpose of the signs and miracles in the Word of God, and even the purpose today as a church and as a global family. We we went through a whole week of prayer and fasting. We're just coming off of that. I hope that you are joining us. I hope that you are a part of that. Maybe this is the first time you ever took time to actually fast at the beginning of the year and, and pray. Maybe you use the devotions and the videos or whatever the case is. Nothing like fasting to bring about a little bit of tension in your life. The tension of, I'm hungry, and I'm being ugly to people right now. It's like, isn't that, I'm supposed to be holier, I thought, at this moment. I'm being like a big jerk. And there's nothing like that tension to, to actually just show us, man, gosh, I am so weak, Lord. Please help me. I need you. And then maybe in this time of prayer and fasting, you are actually bringing some crises that you are going through in your life to Jesus and saying, God, I am praying that you would break through in my life like this official did in this story that we just read. You're desperate for Jesus to step into the middle of your crisis. And I hope and pray that God met you where you are this week as you prayed, as you fasted, as you consecrated yourself unto the Lord. We'd love to hear what God is doing in your life. And we tried to send some ways out to hear back from maybe some things God did miraculously in your life, things that he showed you. 
Maybe you could come tonight and be a part of the worship time tonight as we have a worship evening to really just culminate and celebrate what God has done and what he will continue to do. Now back to our text this morning for encouragement from God's word today. For the sake of context, let's understand this about the book of John. John's goal in telling these seven miracles that we're looking at is to reveal Jesus as the Son of God. That's his goal. John's taking the tone of an evangelist right now. He's saying, this is who Jesus is. So his purpose in writing this gospel is so that the Greek and Hebrew minds were going to read the word of God and understand salvation, see Jesus as the son of God. So he uses the word signs over miracles because he's pointing to what? He's pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. I want to read from John chapter 20. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John explicitly states right here why he's writing the gospel, so that you would believe. Even for us today, as we read the book of John, that we would believe that Jesus is in fact who he says he is, the Son of God. Can I implore you that just as that was the goal then for John and who he knew would read the Bible then, it is the same today. Whatever happens by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus the Son unto the glory of God the Father's main purpose is that we would acknowledge and exalt Jesus as Savior and Lord in the earth today. That's the purpose. That's the goal. So what we know from previous verses is that Jesus, as we start this text, if you will, it says that he left Galilee. We know that Jesus was in Samaria and he left Galilee or he left Samaria to head to Galilee. I love the fact that Jesus was in Samaria. While everybody else avoided Samaria, Jesus went there. Did you know that while everybody else avoids certain places, those with the name of Jesus do not? Jesus was in Samaria. He'd been hanging out with the outsiders, making them insiders. Samaritans, the people that the Jews hated and despised, and now they are the ones that are widely loving and accepting Jesus. They even called him the Savior of the world. That's what the Samaritans were calling him after the woman at the well went back and told them what Jesus had done. They're like, he's the Savior of the world. Now Jesus is going to his home turf. Now he's got the home field advantage, or at least it would seem. He's going home where everybody knows him and everybody loves him. I kept thinking about that. I kept thinking about the fact that I remember back years ago, I went off to school for six and a half years, and I, and I come back, and I come back to this church to where everybody loves me. It didn't work out that way as exactly as I thought. Not that people didn't love me, not that people didn't love Jesus, but as we're going to see today, there's something about that familiarity. So Jesus goes back to his hometown, his home turf, where the insiders, who should even be more on his side, where there should be even more fruitful ministry, there should be the home field advantage, if you will. And we read in verse 44, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Why? Why? Here's why, 
because they fail to believe and honor him for who he truly is. They fail to see and honor him for who he truly is. Well, hold up. Does it verse 45 say that they welcomed him? Yes, it does. We'll read it. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, but they also, for they also had been there. Have you ever been welcomed somewhere, but you really weren't welcomed? Like, there's a sign maybe, and that there's, a, there's a reception, and there's a lot of things, but they really are just doing it out of compulsion. It's kind of how I always felt when I, went, when I went to college as a freshman, and the seniors, like, come and welcome you. It's like, I don't think they really want us here. They welcomed Jesus, but it really wasn't welcoming. They welcomed out of compulsion. And in this case, they felt like they had something they needed and they felt like Jesus could give it to them. There's irony here from John because they welcome him for what he has done, what they saw him do in Jerusalem at the Passover festival. And they welcome him for what they hope that he can do for them now. There's also this tension here of familiarity and faith. That's what I'm talking about. There's always this tension kind of going on. Oh, yeah, we know Jesus. He's the son of of Mary and Joseph. Yeah, the carpenter's boy. Yeah, could you do some miracles for us? It's kind of like I thought about the fact that, you know, as Georgia won the national championship and, and maybe the quarterback, Stetson Bennett, goes back to his little hometown in South Georgia and everybody welcomes him, but they're just welcoming him because of the fact that they feel like they know him. But they don't really know. They don't know who he really is. But they, meet, they can get something out of it, maybe. See, they knew Jesus more as a miracle worker than they did as the Son of God. And in contrast, in Samaria, where the focus is not on the miracle working power of God, but on his word. What did the town say after the woman at the well testified of Jesus? We have heard him for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus had a desire for people to have a commitment based on dedication, not just an amazement with him. He wanted to have a commitment from them, not just cure them. And it's the same today. This isn't new either. John chapter 2 and a few chapters before, it says, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival where some of these people would have seen him, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But watch this. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. I mean, have you ever read that? It's like, what? Wait, what? They believed in him. For he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. He knew the motives of their heart. He knew why they were believing, so to speak, in him. So they believed, John says, but this was not the kind of belief that Jesus accepted. It was simply an excitement for his miracles, not what they pointed to. Again, what do signs and miracles point to? They point to a person. They point to Jesus. They point to the beauty and the glory of the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. That's what they point to. And you can feel the tension between the power of Jesus and the person of Jesus. Both are real. But are we coming to Jesus because of what he could do for us or based on what he's already done for us? Do we come to Jesus? Is it all about what he can do or is it about who he is? 
the Savior of the world, the Son of God. Even when John mentions in verse 46 that Jesus was visiting Cana once again or once more, he says, it's a nod to the fact that he already performed, we talked about last week, one miracle there when he turned the water into the wine. So there's still some people now that are hearing about this. Oh, yeah, this is the guy that did that thing at the wedding. Oh, yeah, 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 I, I, I heard about him. Oh, he's from here. They're familiar with Jesus. They're familiar with this, the, his miracles even, and that familiarity is creating attention. So before we move on, let's talk about how this familiarity affected the Galileans and how it can creep into our lives today and keep us from honoring Jesus for who he truly is. What happens when you're so familiar and you've got that familiarity going on is there's a pride of knowing someone special. We've all felt that before. Like I said, like, oh, I know him. It's kind of like how a kid feels about their, their dad or their parents, right? They, they, they don't know that nobody else knows them or really cares about their parents, but they think they're the greatest person in the world, right? It's kind of like that with somebody that maybe is an is a all-star athlete, like I said, who's going to his hometown or a celebrity that maybe was on American Idol or something. They go to their hometown, whenever they'd have those hometown shows and everybody be excited. It's like, well, I, I've lived here my whole life. Where are all these people before? We've all felt this. It feels good to know important people. So the people could say that this great miracle worker grew up in their town. This makes them want for him to do miracles. Why? The more miracles he does, the more well-known he gets, the more pride they begin to feel. That's our boy right there. So they honor him in that way. But why do they want him to do these miracles? Because the more he does, the more it feeds their ego because they know him. What about us? Sometimes we can become so attached to a preacher or a movement or a music style or a person or a ministry in a way that starts to feed our ego and it seems justifiable because it's Christian. And suddenly we begin to want this Christian thing to thrive, not for the glory of Christ, but because it feeds our ego because we're attached to it and it gives us a little bit of pride in knowing that person or that thing. Then it becomes harder and harder to see Christ for who he really is as the one who saves us by grace alone and who calls us to a life of humility and servanthood. Another thing that you see here is an attitude of entitlement. Entitlement, man, that'll, that'll kill you, the, the ability to honor Jesus or anybody for that matter. Is Jesus the, the, the one that, oh yeah, that, that's our homie right there. He's from this town, like that's our boy. So we should get his first and his best. Hey, don't forget where you came from, Jesus. We know your mama and your daddy. This is the mindset that still creeps in with us today into our souls. And if you ever start to feel entitled yourself to be blessed by Jesus, then you're, you're falling away from grace. A sense of deservedness or entitlement will keep us from knowing and honoring Christ for who he truly is. We will not honor him for who he is if we slip into this mindset that somehow we're entitled to this because we did this or that. And then there's this over-familiarity, and I mentioned this, and it kind of seems like opposite of the first two. But they're overly familiar. This man's one of us. He's the carpenter's son. I know his mom. I know his dad. He's always been ordinary. How can he be what he claims? How, how can he be the son of God? We know where he's from. We know what he does. We know his family. We know his brothers and sisters. And the same mindset could be us. We're so familiar with the Bible. 
that we forget it is the word of God. We're so familiar with Jesus that we forget he's the savior of the world. We're so familiar with Christianity that we forget that Christianity isn't just something that I do. It's an abundant life in Christ. We're so familiar even with the church that we forget that she is the bride of Christ and the hope of the world. And it's leaders. Oh, yeah. That's just Pastor Brent. Oh, yeah, I know them that nothing could shock us, that Jesus can't do anything really mind-blowingly powerful because it's just all too familiar. We have to guard against these impulses in our souls because the first two, the pride of, of knowing or attachment and a sense of entitlement minimize the grace of God. And the last one, like too familiar, minimizes the power of Jesus. Back to our text and what we see at the beginning here, I want you to see this as we see a crisis of faith. I want you to see a progression of faith today in this story, one that I hope will encourage you. First, we see a crisis of faith, verse 46, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. And when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. I'd call this a legitimate crisis. His son's dying. Any parent in here can understand the desperation that this high-ranking official must have felt. His son is dying, but even his powerful position, he's a powerful official. This guy is up there. He's, he's probably second only to the king. And it's a stark reminder in this story that our status and our wealth and our connections and who we know and our fame and our money cannot save us when our bodies stop working properly. Nothing can. These are the crises that only Jesus can cure. So he begs Jesus to come heal his son. And Jesus addresses, not just this man really, he's addressing the whole group that's around. He's saying, all of you, all of you, I, I know what's going on in your heart and mind. And unless you people see signs and wonders, you're never going to believe. Remember, I said there's a difference between, last week I said there's a difference between a starting faith and a finishing faith or belief. Like there's a lot of people that start off the race of faith. There's just not as many that finish the race of faith. There's a difference, right? So apparently, as I'm reading this, there's a difference in how we first even come to believe in Jesus. What I mean is there's a faith that is predicated on God showing evidence of himself. And that's better than no faith at all. But it's not the deepest faith possible, at least according to what Jesus is saying here. Jesus said the same thing to Thomas, didn't he, later on, the, the disciple? Therefore, this story illustrates a new dimension, if you will, of believing and of faith. Namely, a believing without the immediacy of seeing. And it foreshadows the words that Jesus gives to Thomas when he says, you're going to believe because you saw the nail prints in my hands, but blessed are those who will believe when they don't see anything. It foreshadows now how all of us come to faith. Here's some of the tension again. You sign seekers, you're wonder worshipers. That's what y'all are. You say you believe, but your belief, like the people in Jerusalem in John 2, 23, is what Jesus is saying, is not a real belief that honors me. 
This is what he's saying. He said, we can call it belief, but it's not the kind that unites you to Jesus. It doesn't make you someone who sees and treasures Jesus as who he is, the Son of God, full of grace and truth. In fact, it actually dishonors Jesus. So verse 48 is the most explicit indictment yet, along with verse 44, that a prophet has no honor in his own home area. But what was the official doing? He was just coming to Jesus. I don't know if the official actually felt this way. Was he in the crowd of, the, of those who believed but didn't believe? Was he that person that was a sign seeker, not a savior seeker? He's a lover of Jesus' power, but not a lover of the person of Jesus Christ? I don't think he is. I honestly think that he isn't interested in Christology, theology, or signs. Or, he's not, he just wants his son healed. I think that's kind of, look, I, I, don't, I don't really care I just want you to come heal my son. And it's not like an unbeliever is supposed to love God. An unbeliever will use God. And it seems like Jesus is okay being used. As long as God is at work drawing the hearts of those that are using Jesus. Therefore, it seems as if Jesus' response in verse 48 might be a little bit like a test. And how does the official respond? Because he's like, listen, you're not going to believe unless I give you a sign. How does the official respond? He says, sir, would you just come down before my child dies? That's, that's what he's saying. Like, undeterred by Jesus' rebuke of him and the entire crowd, really, his crisis makes him call on Jesus again. Is that how it is with you sometimes? It's like, look, I'm undeterred. My crisis that I'm in just makes me keep calling on the name of Jesus again and again and again and again. I didn't get the answer that I wanted. I'm just going to keep calling on his name. And he just calls on me again. Okay, but would you just come? And there's not a comment by Jesus or the book of John on the man's sincerity. Jesus just simply gives him a gift. And we see in verse 50, he says, go, your son will live. And the man took Jesus at his word and departed. I think this is what differentiates this man from the rest of the Galileans. He took Jesus at his word and he obeyed. What's remarkable is that he had asked Jesus to come with him. He said, would you come with me? But when Jesus simply spoke, go, your son will live, the man obeyed without a question. He believed and he went. He did not insist on seeing the miracle. He did not complain that Jesus would not come with him. He just up and left. But how did he leave? Did he leave like the rich young ruler, sad? Did he leave angry? Did he leave bitter? Did he leave frustrated? No, here's what the Bible says. He left believing. I'm inclined to think that faith arose in this man's heart at that moment when Jesus said, go, your son will live. And he saw something more than a miracle worker at that moment. He saw Jesus, the savior of the world, and he believed that Jesus could heal his son without actually coming to him and touching him. His faith grew, and it went from a crisis faith, which I think a lot of us start there, and it moved to a confident faith. I'm like, okay, I'm in a crisis. And at some point, you move from a crisis and see who Jesus is, and it goes from that crisis, and it moves into confidence. I want to encourage you that many people come to Jesus with a crisis faith. And Jesus doesn't turn us away. He didn't turn this man away. 
He doesn't turn anyone away. But through his kindness, through his love, he does want to turn your crisis faith into, just like this official, a confident faith. That I don't just kind of live in crisis faith mode all the time. Our Heavenly Father is so loving and kind. Watch this in verse 51. While he was still on the way. I love this, right? Stop right there. Where did God meet him? While he was on the way. While he was probably halfway there. And at some moment, just like all of us, because we've all been there. Like we're over here. We see Jesus as he really is. And all of a sudden our faith is confident. And we start walking. I know Jesus is going to do this. I know Jesus is going to come through. I'm not really sure. Did he really say that? I'm kind of beginning to doubt he even exists. And while he's on his way, while he's moved, Jesus in his kindness, God in his kindness meets him there on the way. Probably just about the time that doubt and fear began to creep in. It's like, what if I get home and he's dead? So many times we want to stay where we are in this crisis mode that we're not willing to go on our way in faith and trust and belief at what God's word says and obey him. But it's in that on the way. It's not until he's on his way with confident faith that God uses his servants to come halfway and meet him and let him know that his son is alive. And here's what happens. He goes from a crisis faith I see you, Jesus. I believe you. I'm a confident faith. And Jesus meets him because he knows our frame along the way. And his confident faith, when he hears that his son has been healed, is now a confirmed faith. How many of you like confirmation? Like, yeah, I feel like this is what God is saying, but I sure would like a confirmation. Man, I know some people, you have to have 86 confirmed words from the Lord before we'll step out. What does its word say? Well, it says, well, then what are we waiting on? Well, I need a confirmation. Okay. And don't, hey, and don't get me started on whatever confirmation I might give you. Well, yeah, pastor, that's great. But well, why am I here? It says, while he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time in which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. His faith immediately strengthened by the news, right? That's what happens when we see something or we hear something or something is confirmed in us. Our strength, faith, our faith strengthens. We're like, yes, I could take that mountain. I I could take that giant, whatever it is, and watch what happens. His confirmed faith then becomes a contagious faith. And it says in verse 53 that his whole household believed. This became somewhat of a paradigm in the books of, book of Acts. You think about the Philippian jailer and his whole household believed. Listen, a whole household would believe and be saved as the result of one person in the family being saved and then having a contagious faith. It was a paradigm in the book of Acts, and I believe it should be a paradigm today. Like it's not a personal faith that I just hold on to myself and I don't share. Like if this really is a crisis faith that turned into a confident faith, that turned into a confirmed faith, then it should be contagious to those who know me the best. Where whole households will come and believe and be saved. 
And there's no condemnation. Here's what I want you to understand today, church. There's no condemnation if you start with a crisis because it can propel us to confidence and a confirmation and a contagious faith that will lead us to a finishing faith. So like Paul, we could say, I finished the race. Let me conclude by saying there's a lot more to see, but I want to focus on what we see about Jesus first and foremost, because this is what this is all about, that we would see Jesus, even now that the signs of, of what we see and read in God's word would point us to Jesus. And here's what we see about Jesus. Jesus is gracious. We see this in this story. Jesus was gracious with this man. Even with the people in the Galilee, he's like, okay. But I find it interesting that the people in Galilee wouldn't necessarily know what Jesus has done unless they traveled about the 20 miles that this guy had to go to to get back home with him, which they probably didn't. So he heals his child in a very unbelieving atmosphere. And the first thing he says to the official when the people plead for his son is, unless you see signs and wonders, you are not going to believe. Jesus does not commend the man or the people around him. He is provoked at the sign-seeking false faith that surrounds him. And in that context, he gives this man a free gift of healing. In other words, when Jesus decided to heal this boy, it was grace alone. He was not looking at anybody's merit. There was nobody that deserved it. There was nobody that did something to earn it. It was a free, gracious gift. We have seen, John says, we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. John 1.16, if you have pride of attachment or you have a sense of entitlement, you're not going to be able to see Jesus as gracious. And then secondly, what we see about Jesus in this story is Jesus is powerful. There's no other name like his name. John wants us to see not only is Jesus gracious, but he is also powerful. Not only is there grace in the healing, but there is the power of healing. The boy was dying of a fever. And the power of Jesus to heal is seen in the fact that he did it with a mere word, go. The boy will live. And at that word, the physical chemistry of that boy's body began to change. And Jesus showed us his power over space, if you will. He was not limited because he was in Cana and the sick boy was in Capernaum. He wasn't limited because the boy was 15 to 20 miles away. The boy could have been 15,000 to 20,000 miles away. It did not matter. Distance is never a hindrance to the power of Jesus. And when Jesus speaks with authority, there are no spatial limitations to his power. And the power of his healing is seen in the fact that it was immediate. John draws special attention to that. They say in verse 52 that he recovered in the seventh hour, 1 p.m., the day before. John says in verse 53, the father knew that at that hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, at that very moment, it was done. A dying boy was healed by a word over a distance all at once. That's the power of Jesus. Here's what, grace and power, mercy and might. We beheld his glory, John says, and the glory of the only son of the father and from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. So my prayer is that God would remove all pride, all entitlement, all that blinding familiarity we can have with Jesus and his church. And he would reveal to us the glory and the grace and the power of Jesus Christ. That we would know him for who he truly is. 
Yes, there's that tension, yes. I'm gonna come to Jesus, you should come to Jesus. That's what this, this man did. And Jesus didn't turn him away, he healed the boy. We're gonna come to Jesus because we need him to come through for us. But we're gonna come understanding who he is. He's not just a miracle worker. He's the son of God. He is the savior of the world. And more than just curing my body, he wants a commitment of my heart. So as we bring all that we have to him, let's trust him to be the savior of the world. And not just the savior of the world, but the savior of our hearts. And here's what I want. I want our crisis faith to become a confident faith, a confirmed faith. But more than all, I want it to be a contagious faith in the body of InFocus Church. That all those that know and see and hear us would know that Jesus is in fact the Savior of the world. Amen. You have been listening to the InFocus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from. And visit InFocusChurch.org for more on all this going on in the life of our church.